If your food media diet is fueled by HRN, become a monthly donor today. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Oysters on wild reefs, they form this three-dimensional structure, kind of like a coral reef. It's maybe not as colorful or beautiful as a coral reef, but it's that same kind of three-dimensional structure and their shells form all these nooks and crannies that serve as homes for a lot of fish species that end up on our dinner plates. So when those fish are young, they need habitat for protection so they don't get eaten. And so if if we're harvesting all the oysters out of the bay, or if if we're not making sure that the water conditions in the bay are healthy for oysters to live in, not only will the oysters go away, but all these other species that depend on the oysters will go away. That's global change biologist Dr. Emily Rivest. Blue crabs, anchovies, shrimp, and striped bass are just some of the delicious critters that rely on oyster beds. The ocean is a major player in all organisms' life and development here on Earth. But given how impactful it is, it's surprising how little we currently know about it. With only 20% explored, it's still largely a mystery to us. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and 3. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. In addition to creating a better habitat for their fellow ocean dwellers, oysters improve water quality and filter out pollutants and algae. They're also delicious and currently in incredibly high demand. Brianna Brady has the story. Oysters tend to feel like a special treat. Most people don't shuck and prepare them at home. It's a restaurant thing. And so I guess as we've all stepped out of our homes and back into restaurants, we've gone a little nuts for oysters. Oysters are a hot commodity. Oyster farmers are busier than ever, racing to try to keep Oyster up with Oyster farmers oil. having the time of their life right Some now. Some restaurants all say they are actually running out of oysters. I mean, we all kind of knew something was coming. Uh, to be honest with you, no, none of us could have predicted the, the just the sheer amount of production that we've had to keep up you know, to get oysters all around the country to all these restaurants. That's Captain Mark Harrell of Mystic Oysters in Knowing, Connecticut. And right now, like other oyster farmers, they're operating at max capacity. The current appetite for oysters is a boon for an industry that struggled during lockdown. Mystic Oysters sales dropped to nearly zero in the first few weeks of the pandemic when restaurants closed. They managed to survive with enthusiastic local support. And now, as they work to meet the rising demand... Mystic Oysters is careful not to repeat the mistakes of the past. There's been a lot of issues in the last, you know, even 100 years in Long Island Sound where, you know, oysters were basically over-harvested. So what we do is we try and mitigate that. 
Overharvesting is a problem because having an oyster population is actually really good for water quality and the environment. Oysters are filter feeders. They pump water through their bodies in order to feed. As they do this, they remove things like excess nitrogen and sediment from the water. Mystic Oysters sees themselves as helping facilitate this process. We actually spread all of our oysters out along our oyster beds right on the ocean floor, so right on to the bottom. What they'll do is those oysters will get tumbled by the tide. They'll sit on the bottom. They're, they're filtering all the algae in the water, and they're growing kind of where they originally wanted to be anyways. When the oysters they've planted are fully grown and have done some of that good filtering work, they harvest them. Note the word harvest. They're not fishermen. We're farmers. Everything we do is generational in thought. So the way that we farm is to keep it sustainable and to keep it going towards the future. So we're looking at crops anywhere from two to three years in advance. And we're looking at our grounds as much as like almost like a a cornfield. So oyster farmers are playing the long game. They're not about to pull up every oyster in the ocean, no matter what the demand is. The balancing act of keeping oysters in the waterways and on our plates continues. It'll be interesting to see what happens through the fall and winter. I think that might be a a telltale sign of, you know, what is really going on. I mean, are, are people just going out to restaurants because they've been cooped up for a year? Or is this kind of the new normal or the new way that people spend their money? Whatever the reason, Captain Mark is hoping our appetite for oysters sticks around. Another one of America's favorite sea creatures also finds itself in a precarious position, the lobster. The last 150 years have taken them from prison food to fine dining. But how will the cockroaches of the sea fare as the effects of climate change worsen? H. Conley asked some experts. Lobsters have been a key part of the American food system for at least 2,000 years. They've gone from washing up on beaches in droves to a more than a half a billion dollar industry. To learn about the future of the American lobster, I spoke to two scientists from the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. My name is Emily Rivest, and I am a global change biologist, and I study how species like oysters and lobsters are responding to changes in the environment around them. Hi, I'm Jeff Shields. I'm a professor in marine science. Jeff and Emily have been studying lobsters in the Gulf of Maine and the impacts of warming and acidification of their habitats. And the Gulf of Maine is an area that has shown one of the most rapid responses to temperature increases and ocean acidification on the planet. Most folks understand why the ocean is warming, but the causes of acidification are less familiar. The ocean does an incredible favor for us in that it absorbs about a third of that carbon dioxide, which would otherwise accelerate global warming. But when that carbon dioxide enters the water, it fundamentally changes the chemistry in a way that's harmful to marine shellfish and crustaceans. So for example, it makes it harder for these animals to calcify their shells and hard parts. And so in the future, we might expect oysters to be smaller and to have more brittle shells. And um, as the carbon dioxide enters the system, it drives the carbonation down towards seven. And a a low pH in the marine system would would be considered like 7.5. 
Distilled water has a neutral pH of 7. Higher than that is basic, and lower than that is acidic. The ocean has a surprisingly basic pH of 8 to 8.5. pH is measured on a logarithmic scale, so a decrease of 1 represents a tenfold increase in acidity. Jeff and Emily studied how embryogenesis, the formation and development of embryos, was affected by these changes. Female lobsters have to care for their brood during the 9 to 11 months it takes them to develop. They ventilate the brood, meaning they will wave appendages under their tail to move water past the embryos so that they can get enough oxygen. And that's very important for them staying healthy and alive. And naturally, you know, they have hundreds of embryos that they're carrying. And some will die naturally as time goes on. And so they will pick out the dead ones so that there aren't any infections that develop. So there's a really good body of literature already showing that increasing temperature affects the metabolic rate of egg development. So warmer temperatures, eggs develop much faster. Faster development can lead to them hatching when the phytoplankton they eat are less plentiful. Having said that, uh, it's really interesting in that um, over the last few years, lobster larvae have actually done very well in the Gulf of Maine um, with these warmer temperatures. And that's because the larvae tend to grow faster under warmer conditions. Larvae might be bountiful in warmer waters, but higher temperatures pose several risks. Lobsters have an optimal thermal range of 12 to 16 degrees centigrade, 53 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Their immune systems are quite different than those of vertebrates like us. They work through phagocytosis, the ability to remove invaders from the bloodstream. And that ability is significantly altered as in decreases when animals are held above 16 degrees. And what we've seen in Long Island Sound is there has been a disease outbreak called epizootic shell disease that arises because their immune systems are compromised and they can't ward off bacterial uh, diseases that invade their cuticle, their shell, and wear the shell down. If they succumb to disease before adulthood, that could mean fewer to eat and fewer to reproduce. For mobile species like lobster, so species that can move, they will just move to an area that has more suitable water conditions for them. And we're definitely seeing that with the American lobster and its distribution along the east coast of the United States in that the distribution is shifting northward because the ocean is warming. And that certainly has effects on, you know, the fisher people who can't easily as easily follow the lobsters. <laughs> and they can't move their house northward as the lobsters move their house, their homes northward. Communities that have historically relied on lobsters may find progressively fewer available in their region. Plus, the flavor of those remaining in warmer waters might suffer. We don't really know how that's going to affect lobster flavor, but there have been a couple of studies on northern shrimp, Pandalus borealis. Uh, one of them found, with the 30-day exposure to higher temperatures and ocean acidification, that the meat um, flavor and, I think it was, yeah, appearance, were both affected 
if you're eating animals that are like on the edge of their stress limits, then yeah, their, their texture and flavor might be uh, suitably altered. The precise ways climate change will impact lobsters is not yet clear. But anything we can do to decrease their stress levels will benefit the animals themselves as well as those who fish and eat them. Ultimately, to address climate change, we need to reduce our carbon emissions, whether that's through individual actions, whether that's through how you vote and how you advocate for policy change. It's so, so, so important. And part of the complexity of climate change is it's not just warming. It's warming and ocean acidification. It's warming and ocean acidification and lower oxygen in the ocean or lower salinity in certain areas that are experiencing more precipitation. So there's a lot more left to learn. We're really excited to keep digging in so that we can keep these tasty critters around. (laughs) As America changed, so has lobster habitat. They were there when we became the society we are today. Let's make sure they're here for the one we become. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. You may have noticed that we have a whole new look. We also launched a new website that's going to make your listening easier and more enjoyable than ever before. HRN is the original food podcast network. And as we enter a new chapter in our 12-year history, I want to ask you to invest in HRN for the long haul. If you rely on this show to fuel your food media diet, become a monthly sustaining member today. Our members keep the voice of America's food movement alive and kicking. Your donations support this podcast along with 40 other shows on Heritage Radio Network. Your contribution helps give HRN the security we need to stay on the airwaves throughout the pandemic, and your continued support is allowing us to reopen our studio. Plus, we like to give our regular members special treatment. So sign up to become a monthly donor and get access to our secret menu. We've gathered together exclusive discounts and offers from some of your favorite food and beverage brands. So you get to enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. So can you make a gift of five or $10 a month? It'll show me and our whole team at HRN how much this podcast and food radio in general means to you. Become a monthly sustaining member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. We cover avenues for accessing grants, loans, and financial services through federal and local government programs, as well as via nonprofits. We examine the benefits worker cooperatives present to workers, communities, and our food system, and share resources to learn more about operating under this model. We're talking to business owners who started pop-ups and became permanent during the pandemic to see what we can learn. Don't miss these episodes. 
Subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to TD Bank for supporting this programming. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Sailing, nowadays, can sound extravagant. But for the longest time, boats were pretty much the only option for traveling long distances. And it was not always so glamorous. Zoe Denkla explores how one drink served aboard British naval ships shaped the success of their colonial empire in the 18th century. So grog was a drink created by a British naval officer stationed in Barbados in 1731. It consists of rum, water, sugar, and lime. Basically, if you've ever been out, ordered some sort of rum drink, and unavoidably been served a watered-down, overpriced version, you've had grog. This drink sounds really simple, and it is. But the move to start serving grog to sailors aboard British naval ships was huge. Almost instantly, it improved the health of British sailors. Healthier sailors meant a more successful navy, and of course, a more powerful British empire. So, how did this one drink manage all that? Like I said before, Grog's main ingredient is rum, created from the leftover dregs of sugar that sit, ferment, and become alcoholic over time. The British weren't familiar with rum till they sailed to the West Indies in the early 1600s. So, before we launch into grog, it's important to note that this drink is a product of British colonialism. British men came over, settled on the island of Barbados in 1627, and set up sugar plantations. Sugarcane, rum, and in turn grog was a product of slave labor on these islands. Rum which was known as Kill Devil or Rum Bellion, made a real splash in the nautical community. Before 1731, the British government issued sailors a daily allowance of wine or beer. This ration, of course, was meant to boost morale, but also was critical in making water aboard the ship more palatable. A couple weeks at sea, and that water was not doing too well. After only a few days, it thickened and grew algae. So by the end of their journey, left with rancid water and wine, men often fell sick to bacterial infections. These drinks were cast away with the introduction of rum, because unlike wine or beer, it didn't spoil. Plus, rum's higher alcohol content meant it took up much less space. So in 1731, sailors' allotment of a gallon of beer was replaced by a half pint of rum. The half pint was efficient in terms of space, but unsurprisingly, the same could not be said for its effects on the crew. Just picture that scene from Pirates of the Caribbean with all the men smashing glasses over their heads on a boat at sea. Admiral Edward Vernon saw how Rome was impacting his crew and was not pleased. So, in 1740, Vernon, a.k.a. Old Man Grog, enforced all these new regulations around rum consumption. First and foremost, sailors would no longer receive straight rum. Instead, it would be mixed with two pints of water and split into two allowances a day. Vernon really tried to spruce up that rum water. He added brown sugar and lime, which made it a little bit more appealing. Grog was introduced with the sole purpose of tempering Vernon's crew. Little did he know 
that one seemingly small addition to his watered-down rum would forever improve the health of the British Navy. Along with all the rancid water, wine, and beer, sailors had limited access to fresh food. No fresh food, no vitamin C. So, the other major nautical affliction in the 1700s was scurvy, which is simply a vitamin C deficiency. Any guesses now on that magical minor ingredient? It's lime. The citrus in Vernon's drink provided sailors with enough vitamin C to ward off scurvy. By 1795, lime became a mandated ingredient in sailors' daily dose of grog. The British became so pro-grog, sailors from outside Britain started calling them limeys for all the citrus stored on their ship. Mock all they want, but those limes made the British much healthier than any other sailors. The French kept their daily wine ration, the Spanish had their fruit brandy, neither of which had much vitamin C. British cases almost vanished by 1800, but French and Spanish sailors continued to be plagued by scurvy. The deficiency wasn't life-threatening, but it definitely didn't make for the most useful crew. It caused weakness, fatigue, even convulsions. So less scurvy meant more capable men on deck. And, of course, more capable men meant a more powerful navy. From there on out, the British kind of dominated the sea, which was a huge reason they were such a successful imperial power. Makes you think about all the little things, you know, outside of sheer strength and superiority, that drastically impact military success and history. We turn now to another unexpected player in health, not on deck, but under the ocean's surface. To learn more, we take a trip to a farm. While we all have an image of what a farm looks like, what if I told you that some farms are underwater? I'm really excited to talk about farming and eating kelp. That's Lisa Held, the host of HRN's show, The Farm Report. She had the chance to talk to Heritage Seaweed founder Josh Rogers to learn the many benefits of kelp farming in Portland, the most populous city in the state of Maine. It is a truly zero input crop. So it requires no fresh water, no land, which is going to become a big thing too, um, no pesticides, no fertilizers. While it's growing, it's doing all sorts of great things for the water quality. Mm -hmm. So it's reducing ocean acidification, at least kind of in its immediate area. It's creating a ton of oxygen. About, I think it's 80% of the world's oxygen comes from algae, mm -hmm. not plants. And so, you know, a lot of that is marine algae, seaweed. It's creating habitat for all sorts of like baby uh, lobsters and different things, which is a huge, you know, of huge importance to Maine, right. Maine's economy. After kelp is grown and harvested, how can it be incorporated into home kitchens? The easy ways to start, I think, are something like the, a smoothie cube. Because, mm. you know, you think about it now and you put in greens to a smoothie. You can't yeah. even taste it necessarily if right. you put enough fruit in. Um, so that's a good way to start. There's also a kelp puree out there on the market that's similar. I think if you're a cook and you really want to cook with it, yeah. if you get a kelp and you just start snipping up bits of it in soups... You're probably not going to really taste it. It's going to add maybe a bit of umami or something, but it's not going to be a. It's not going to take over your, your stew or your soup. 
Besides the environmental benefits, there are also health reasons why we would want to use seaweed at home. You know, we've all switched to sea salt now, it seems like. Yeah. Um, which is great, but sea salt doesn't have iodine. And so there's not a lot of things that have iodine, but Dulce does. Rogers is also behind Portland's Seaweed Week, an annual kelp harvest festival that includes nearly 100 participating restaurants this year. Learn more from Lisa's interview with Rogers and about the other guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to H. Conley, Brianna Brady, Pablo Alvarez, and Zoe Denkla. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. 